Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 9th and 10th of July 2022. Film clips played at the live event have been edited out of the podcast. In this panel discussion, moderator Sasha Judd speaks with narrative designer, producer, and screenwriter Henry Faltham, writer for Screen and VR Dane Giroux, and design manager at Wellington-based games company Pickpock Rick Stem about the similarities and differences between the storytelling requirements in games, VR, film, and television. They discuss what they have learned from working in the respective mediums and what opportunities there might be to cross over. This session is presented by Screen Canterbury. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to kick this off by just showing some trailers of the work um, that the three panellists have been um, doing over the last little while. So I think the house lights are going to go down. Don't be startled. Greetings. If you're privileged enough to be viewing this film, that means you're about... So hopefully, Dane, Henry, and Rick have sat in order of their names on screens. You can keep them straight, and you can ask questions in the app, which we'll get to towards the end of the session. So if you, anything pops into your mind, make sure you um, jot it down. So perhaps uh, trying to keep it as briefly as possible, um, why don't each of you just give us a 30-second version of how you wound up working in gaming? Well, hi, everyone. Uh, Dane Giro. Um, I have had no real background in gaming at all, apart from liking to play rugby games and gridiron games and things like that. Um, I was a, uh, worked in documentary, or trained as an actor originally, worked in documentary for about 10 years, then started writing comedies and feature films, and then just stumbled upon this opportunity and didn't really know what I was uh, getting in for, really, and, and had to learn on the job, but it was, um, it's been fantastic. Mm. Morena, my name's Henry. Uh, pretty consistent theme there, actually. I think I was a fiction writer up until about the middle of the 2000s. Short stories, you know, working on a novel and that kind of things. But some friends of mine, well, some people I knew actually vaguely were making a game, and I was the only writer they knew. And they said, hey, can you come in and try and do some of this? And I was like, hey, yeah, sure. And again, had to learn on the job, because, I mean, there wasn't really, there was no training for that kind of thing back then, and there isn't really very good narrative design training now. But um, yeah, I learned on the job from 20, 2007 onwards, so about 15 years now. I'll try and be quick with my wending path, so I'll talk fast. Um, but I talk about it because anyone can get into games, as you'll see with us. So I, I have a degree in film, but I never used that. Um, I fucked off to New Zealand afterwards and backpacked here, did my OE, learned what an OE was, um, and promised myself I'd get back. When I got back to the States, I did instructional design, so creating interactive um, training, training simulations, training videos, got a great crash course in design that way. Uh, and interactive storytelling. I uh, also did theater on the side. I've been a playwright for 10, 15 years, was doing that. From there, I moved into educational games. Um, from there, I moved into consulting for instructional design while doing indie art, uh, and slowly moved to full-time working artist. So I would teach video game design, I would make my own indie games, I would do theater stuff, interactive performances, and usually mash them up, um, actually doing like, you know, uh, interactive theater with game-like interactions or, or things like that. When it was time for a change, finally got my way back to New Zealand three years ago, uh, where yeah, I'm narrative director at Pickpock. Uh, and proud to say, a New Zealand resident, one year anniversary of my New Zealand residency. So thank you all for welcoming me here. So you've already used a phrase, or a, a title, I guess, that might not be familiar to everyone in the room. Can you explain what the difference is between a narrative designer and a writer? Film has right, writers, screenwriters, and they generally write you know, the characters and the words coming out of people's mouths, and they'll do some scene setting and there'll be some background and stuff. But there's a whole other aspect in games, which is how does the story actually work with that particular kind of game's mechanics? And, like, watching Rick's um, Agent Intercept is a really, really good example of that. Because, like, how do you design a story that'll push people through this game where their car needs to, is a character that needs to get more and more sort of functionality and stuff? And what, what, how can we frame that to actually propel players through? And that's... Not there's not necessarily a word of text you'll read in the game that will, or that will represent that. But um, that kind of thing, the narrative designer is the person who melds all these disparate elements of a game together so that they tell a story that then maybe a game writer can come in and actually write, like the actual the words that the characters say when you achieve certain yeah. you know, progression points and things like that. And yeah. we were talking earlier about how, like for instance, in Wanderer, there's a scene of, of the Soviets attacking um, a Nazi base. And there were a few 
I mean, that was the basic scenario. And we had, um, but there were, it's a puzzle escape room sort of game, basically, Wanderer. So uh, there were a couple of puzzles that the designers really wanted in there. And uh, my job, among other things, was to really weave them into the fabric of a narrative and justify them, you know, um, which can happen in feature film too. I was just saying earlier that with the French Connection, for instance, the producer just said to William Friedkin, I want a better car chase than Bullet because he'd produced Bullet. So it's like, all right, I'll give you that, <laughs> you know, and I'll just weave it into the story and make it make sense. You so say weave into, but it's almost more like actually build the story around this yeah. thing. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like the other way. Yeah, because like think. an Agent Intercept level would start with a series of mechanics and tech restrictions. You need to use the submarine boss because we don't have time to build a new boss. Uh, it has to be in the mountain environment because we just finished this new Arctic environment and we just uh, developed the thing where the car can transform into a sled. Uh, those are the things that need to happen in this level and then build a story around that. Do you find that, that um, a constraint uh, do you find that sort of challenging? I mean, I kind of imagine... I find that, it I'm... liberating because then I go, sweet, okay, I know what the knowns are, so yeah. I can be as crazy as I want as long as I hit those knowns. And so that's why we get, like, in that level, we had the scene, like, how do I get you from a mountain to a submarine and do the sled mode? Well, there's, there's a seismic cannon, because it's very much Saturday morning cartoon kind of game, and they go it off and it creates an avalanche, and you ride down the avalanche, like, to the sub, and that was awesome. Um, but that came out of how do I connect these things together? And that's narrative design. Yeah. I, I, I tend to think that's a sign of a professional in many ways. It's like, you know, the, with the few tools you have, what can you do with it? How can yeah. you justify it? How can you make it work? I think that's, yeah. that's always our job, there's, really. There's, yeah. the odd, there's the odd artist out there who I think needs to work from a completely blank canvas. But generally, I think, like, you never have a blank canvas. I mean, we, have, we use language. We express ourselves to a certain set of words. You can't just, you can't just go, oh, blah, 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 and everyone knows what you're talking about. Or you have a budget. <laughs> Or you have, yeah. you know, some preconceived Always. ideas about how yeah. things yeah. to be made. We, we may talk about this more later, but uh, I want to at least see it now. The, the how you tell a story is super important in video games because every game tells a story differently, and that's a big job of a narrative designer. So if you're doing a classic console game where you see your character in third person versus if you're in VR and it's from POV and you're not really playing a character versus uh, we make a lot of casual mobile games at Pickpock where you're going to be playing them for a long time. So... For example, we have a game about uh, you being a cat influencer. You, you collect cats and create a house for them and take photos of them and post them online and make friends. Uh, and before, right, and, and it's great and wholesome, but the, the how we tell the story has to represent that. So it can't just, like, it doesn't make sense to have crazy 3D animated cutscenes for that, right? It makes sense to have your characters talking to each other via Zoom calls or talking to each other via social media comment system. And so that was our narrative designer going, actually, no, I want them to be talking on screens. Um, I want this comment system so you can see people reacting to your photos. It still needs to take place in the real world, so there's still going to be a map as you kind of move through the city and meet people, but you interact online. So those decisions of the how of the storytelling before you even know what the story is is a critical job of a narrative designer. So let's maybe just dig into that point of view question a little bit because I think that's kind of an interesting distinction. You've just talked about what that means from a, a casual or a mobile gaming perspective. Um, what's the difference for, say, a VR game? Well, yeah, well, I mean, VR, I wasn't just writing the standard game that we, most of us might be used to. It was a VR game. So it's a headset and it's a fixed point of view, the whole game. And, of course, you know, the innovation of film, really, when film came was, like, you could... You had the POV shot, you know? You could actually see through the eyes of your main character. And VR, that's the, that's the only shot you really have, you know, looking through uh, that POV. And what was interesting with that is that, I mean, there were a few things. Like, what I found initially is, because I hadn't, I'd never played one before. So, <laughs> so I go to the office for one of our first meetings, and, and it's like, well, you should really try one of these games. So we put the helmet on me, and, uh, and it's a Batman game. It's, it's just the, the load screen. And, you know, I'm Batman. I look down, I can see my bat boots and everything, and I'm just... And they're sort of hanging over a building, and I'm look, overlooking the whole of Gotham. And I just lose my guts completely, because, like, the spatial awareness thing in VR is so real. Like, it's a simulation, you know? It's not just a game. It's a, it's a real simulation, and you feel all the physical... Um, sensations, like, like spatially, it's huge. Straight away, I learned that unlike a film where, you know, the first five minutes, I've got to throw a whole lot of things at the audience to keep them riveted and, oh, it's a 20-minute mark, you know, and where's the inciting incident and all that kind of stuff. We sort of do have that, but like being in a space is such a huge part of it. 
that you don't actually have to throw that much at people, you know? It's enough for them just to be in a world yeah, when you can, and when you... explore that world, you know? So that was, you know, a really big lesson to learn. Maybe we should stay in that, in that for a while. But, but yeah. the other thing, too, is, like, there's a sidekick character. You may have seen him in the, the Wanderer trailer there, a watch. And, of course, you know, you're the lead character. It's your POV. You're in the shoes of the lead character. But you can't talk. So the watch, the way we wrote the watch, he was giving hints and so forth. But he also had to sort of preempt, we had to preempt what the, um, what the player might be thinking. So, and that sort of, in a way, becomes the dialogue of, of, the, of the lead character as well as being a secondary character. Is that yeah, clear? Do you know the, what I sort of mean by that? Of, that's the intersection of game design and narrative design, where it's like, okay, what is the intended experience of the player at this point, and how is the narrative then serving that and actually keep continuing to propel that? Versus, I guess, that, the more sort of linear film experience where it's like, this is your experience from A through to B, C to Z. Whereas you don't even know what order necessarily people are going to be encountering these things in. Because if, if, if it's a big space, are they going to go over here? Are they going to go over here? If they go, if they go over here and they don't get this piece of information over here, how does that affect how, what, this, what this information means to them? And that played out over potentially 40 80, yeah. 100. I, I know people who have put 5,000 hours. 5, hours into a game. Yeah. Um, and any time you've got someone, any time you're giving that someone a perspective for that length of time, your relationship to the story deepens massively. Yeah, well, like, well, players of Wanderer are exploring the story, you know? More so than even playing a game in a strange way. It doesn't really feel like you're playing a game when you're inside it. You're exploring a world, and then you find clues and so forth that take you to, you know, through story beats, but you're really exploring a world. And yeah. uh, I We've, guess that, that's what made VR so, so interesting. And just the whole physical sensation of the whole thing. I, I do want to share my hot balloon story. You're allowed one more VR anecdote. One, one more VR story. More than... One more. It's a good one, people. <laughs> so I buy a headset because I want to really get familiar with all this stuff. And there's this hot air balloon disaster, it's called, right? It's a half-hour game, $10, so I buy it. And you're in a hot air balloon, and you've got half an hour before it crashes. So you've got to get out of the hot air balloon with your glue gun and, and fix the balloon so you don't crash, right? So I'm playing it with my two sons, and you've got to do like a submarine-style door to get out and get on top of the balloon and, you know, and, and fix it up. And so I do that and then put my head out, and then there's wind and everything, and I start going back down, and my sons are physically, like, trying to push me back up because I start getting scared, you know? And so eventually I get, get out there and holding on and wind and everything, and I climb up the balloon, and I glue it up, and then I look down, and you're, like, 30,000 feet up, and I'm going, oh, and, like, the physical sensation was so real. I go down, I go back into the cabin, I say, I've had enough, kids, you know, you guys got to do it. I take off the headset, my hands are like drenched. <laughs> you, you really are experiencing a lot of the physical sensations in, in these spaces. How many people so have done that... VR here? Yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. Well, that's the magic of games, right? Mm. Is, is hopefully this is obvious, but I want to say it clearly and explicitly. It's the player's story, right? It's interactive. That's what makes it different from any other medium. And so you're much less of an auteur as a game writer and narrative designer because, well, I'll tie it back to the theme, right? The mana aloha is the player's. It's the player's creative power. And that's where you always have to put your head is go, what is the player going to do? What is their experience? What do they want out of it? I'm facilitating that whether it's writing or narrative design. You have to, obviously your writing skills still apply and a game needs a clear vision to be made. Like all of our games have very clear visions with, you know, sort of, you know, head writer or directory or creative directory kind of roles helping guide people. But it's always in service of what do we want the player to do? So you can't just be like, this is my story to tell. You have to go, what is, what is their story that they might want to tell and how do I help that? And Henry, I guess uh, you, Icarus sits somewhere between the, the casual and the fully immersive of VR. Yeah. When you think about that sort of game, um, how do you think about point of view, engaging side characters, side plots, NPCs, sort of backstory? That's the point at which I think some of the best writing becomes invisible. Because it's a multiplayer game uh, and, when, and it's not narratively driven, it's much more about providing a setting in which 
a group of up to six people can have a meaningful experience. It's a survival game, so you've really got to, you know, got to forage food and hunt to eat and build to survive against the elements on this alien planet. Uh, and as you as you go, it you know the, it, it deepens and the world changes, so your experience and understanding of the world shifts. But really, in that sort of a role, my capacity is much more as like a concept artist. I, I write maybe. You know, let's say I write 30,000 words about this world, this universe, how people get there, what, what the sort of social settings are, what it looks like when you arrive, so that I can then start breaking that work up into pieces, handing it off to concept artists who start coming back with images of what this world looks like, so that thematically it all integrates so that you get this cohesive experience of a real world. You won't, you know, there's not a lot of text in the game. Yeah, if you, if you click into the inventory and you hover, you'll get a bit of information that will deepen, say, the, uh, what, this, what this piece of tech does that helps lighten your bag because it's got some kind of anti-gravity function or whatever. But really, what, it's much more about the writing you do pre, in that sort of early, early period yeah, yeah. To, to world build, develop the world as the central character. Because in that setting, it's much more about yeah, the world being the character than the, pl than, the, than the player. I think there's one more really key thing about that perspective, is that when you start making a game as a writer, you ask a question which doesn't quite come up in film as much, which is, are we handing a pre-made identity to the player? Are we saying, you are now becoming this person? And you'd, and you'd have a game like The Last of Us where you become... This, this man or this, this girl, and, and that becomes, and that's quite close to film. Or are we handing them a blank canvas that they are then going to inhabit and take as their own and grow and build? Because you can't put too many dimensions around that because there's just no way to anticipate all the things that they're going to want to do and feel. You can, you, you know, there's, there's also a huge gradient between those two things. So with something like Icarus, it's much more about providing a setting and a world in which they can have those meaningful experiences and develop that character. Yeah. Almost every pickpock game is the, the latter, where the player is the character. And so there's a lot of different techniques to do that. In uh, Rival Stars Horse Racing, which is a horse racing and breeding and ranching game, we do that in a couple ways. Of course, there's the side characters who talk to you, but we also build this family legacy. So the idea is that it's your family's ranch, and so you're actually expressing yourself through the ranch, the way the ranch builds up, the horses, and all of the story beats tie back to that. Like, how can we build the ranch? How can we make your grandfather proud? How can you keep these people working on your ranch? So then you experience it through them. In Agent Intercept, the player is just the agent, and so how we did it that way is um, every plot point had to be solved by the player. That was one of our rules. Like, any cool thing that happened the player had to be doing it, and only the player could do it. So I was constantly going like, oh, what is it about your car and its transforming abilities and stuff? I had to keep crafting these situations where only your vehicle could solve the problem, so the player felt centered. So even though the player didn't have much of a personality, they were always central. And then the personality was expressed through the car. Like, the player character came through and all the, like, cool curves you would do or the crazy flips and stuff you saw, and then the other characters are kind of call how you're kind of a crazy, stylish daredevil and all that. And so, like, the movement of the car is meant to express the personality of the player. And so, yeah, even that, like, every game is going to be different about how you get it across. Or, like, in the Greek chorus thing that Dane was talking about, like, the other characters, you know, being the stand-in for the player. So there's multiple different techniques to create character out of a, a blank space for the player to inhabit. And a lot of those are very traditional techniques that we've pulled from a whole bunch of other disciplines, like film and television and novels. And, and like, I mean, a game can be a poem. A game can be a painting. Uh, and we use, we, the thing I think about games is that we are like, like the English language itself. You know, we just take everything and then figure out what's actually going to work. There's a term that's been coined in relation to gaming called ludonarrative dissonance, yes. which is... Um, the idea that there's the narrative that comes through the story itself, and sometimes that can be really at odds with the narrative that's coming through the player. Yeah. And so, for example, your lead character might be a happy-go-lucky rogue, uh, but in order to win, you have to slaughter 250 right. side characters in order to achieve victory, right? And that, that creates a real dissonance for the yep. player. How, how do you think about that when you're designing and writing the story? Yeah, I've got two examples off the top of my head, so I'll jump in. A, a good bad example of that is actually one of my favorite games, which is Bioshock. I love Bioshock. Great gameplay, really wonderful storytelling. I think the term was coined in relation yeah, to Yeah, right, because the themes of Bioshock are like free will versus destiny and connection or lack of connection between other people. And the gameplay is shooting people. And so there's no, you know, connection. There's the, and the gameplay is wonderful, and the story is wonderful, and they don't talk to each other at all. Yeah. So, like, that was one of the first things we talked about in the Cats game, going, look, the gameplay is 
taking photos of your cats. <laughs> so what is the story that supports that? You're a cat influencer. And then we, we branched out more too and go, okay, based on their demographic, actually social media stuff really works. And we think there's something accessible about entrepreneurship and that everybody sort of can understand this dream of working for yourself and, and having your creative thing so that becomes widely accessible and that makes sense there. And also again, the cats are the main things. So we need to feature that in the gameplay, the cute cats. And so that's where we had to go. All right, the narrative and the gameplay have to be the same thing. Um, exactly, to avoid that and keep people immersed and keep them playing. And Wanderer, I guess the main character, we don't, we don't give too many clues as to who the person is. It's a blanker canvas, I think, to, uh, you know, probably so that the, the player can just fill that space, really. Yes. But, you know, the, the side character is very built up. There's a real Sancho Panza-type character. So there's plenty of character in it. So in a way... You are the respite from all the character work. You know, you can just sit in it and be yourself in the role, really. And the other thing is, there's a bit of a... Remember the show Quantum Leap? Scott Bakula's greatest work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, easy. Hands down. Wanderer has a bit of a Quantum Leap thing in it. So you, be, you actually become different characters through time and, and encounter characters who, write, who are like... Right, you know, you, you sort of arrive on a moving train and it's like, come on, we've got to do this. And whoop, you sort of become that character for the moment that you're in it. So you become all sorts of different people, you know, like an assistant to von Braun, the, the Nazi scientist and, you know, a, a high priest in, in an Inca temple. And, you know, you're really, you're be, you are becoming all these characters. And you're talking about all the ways you've solved that problem though, right? I, mm. In terms of narrative, like narrative dissonance, when it comes up, I feel generally like it's just a case of bad writing and bad, bad design. It's like, you know, if you've got like a teacup with two handles, like which one do you pick up? Like, come on. And I guess the theme here, and it's probably something that's coming through a lot of stuff we've been talking about so far, is that narrative has to serve design in games. It, it, occasionally it can go the other way. Occasionally someone has a story they want to tell, because there are these story-driven games. So there's nothing, there's nothing I can say that's true about all games, because yeah. there's every single kind of game out there now. But generally, as, a, as, a, as, your, as your assumption going into a project, you should assume that your story needs to serve the mechanics. Because that's what the player is experiencing, and it's the player's yeah. turn. And if you've got ludonarrative dissonance, it's because it might not be your fault. Maybe the people who are suggesting this is the kind of game they want to tell, and the story they want to tell are forcing you to do this. But somebody's made a mistake at some point. And Bioshock's a funny example because, like, it is amazing, and they've got this incredible world, but they wanted to make an FPS shooter, and that train had sailed. <laughs> <laughs> the one, I don't know, sidebar, but one thing the games are really good at is, is because the player is in control of them, they're very good at being self-aware and fourth wall breaking, so you can occasionally use ludonarrative dissidents for comedy in really fun ways. There's kind of jokes you can tell in games that you can't tell anywhere else you know, like in, in um, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where there's that great scene of, of Lancelot running up, and it just keeps cutting back to him running and running and running, and then suddenly he's right there. That's a joke you can only tell in film, right? And, and games are really good because you have the connection. There are a lot of jokes you can only tell in games. There's things that happen where, like, you know, the UI can change uh, in, in terms of your experience. There's a great moment in Borderlands where you're... You're hunting a bunch of monsters, and you know it's a video game, so the monsters' names float above them, so you can tell what they are out in the world. And one of the characters gets annoyed with them, and he's like, oh, "I'm sick of these things. Look, let's stop calling them whatever. I'm just going to call them boner farts." And then everywhere in the UI, the monster's name changes to boner fart, and it jumps around. It's a very dumb joke, but it's you know the fart part isn't funny. The funny part is you see the entire UI around the world change in response to this character in a way that breaks you out of it, but it's really funny, and again, is acknowledging that dissonance. So you can have some fun that way, where like you know it's a game, you know you have things like controls and UI that you can play with because the player is always aware of them. Yeah, that's a great example because I often think about the sort of the believability, like you're creating these incredibly immersive worlds, but then you're asking the player to, to accept that, um, you know, if I drink this water, I'll suddenly know how to build a silencer for my gun. You know, like there's some yeah, sort of... The of disbelief is yeah. an amazing thing. And it works. <laughs> yeah. And I think some stuff that Dane's been talking about is exactly how powerful that is. Yeah. The, the, more, the more you're surrounded and like in VR, it's just, it can be overwhelming. Yeah, it can, it can like, be very overwhelming. You will suspend your disbelief, and and you do. Like yeah. uh, after like two or three hours inside, like something like Half Life Alex, which I would highly recommend anybody to, who would play if they have a VR rig because it is a monument and arguably the high end of games technology right now. After, after two hours in that, like I'm not even aware I'm in VR. I'm just in this world. 
And like that's a point. At that point, even my understanding of exactly what is going on starts to break down. Yeah. I'm like, what is this? What, what, <laughs> what is this now? Because those guys are working on like brain machine interface. Ultimately, they want to plug you into the into the internet. But and I'm, I'm like, it's a good it. point. I'm, I'm like I, I played Red Matter, which is an Oculus VR game, and you're exploring an abandoned Mars base. And yep. I'd spent a full weekend basically walking around this Mars base on my own. And then suddenly, at one point, you catch sight of someone else out the corner of your eye. Yeah, and I walked straight into the coffee table because that's <laughs> so terrifying. That's all it takes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, 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 and this, the day made that point earlier, really, that it's just, you can just do, you can do so much with so little at that point. You don't, you're not trying to cram everything into the first 15 yeah. minutes of your script. You're like, actually, when is, the, when is this going to work for the experience? Yeah. Well, the flip well, side... Be, because you have control of the pace, that helps you believe it, you know, because you have control of the pace. You know, you're not passive the way, you know, you're just sitting there watching James Bond do his thing on a screen. You are controlling the pace, and, and you will work at the pace that makes you believe it. A lot of people just, I'm going to clear my weekend, put on the headset, and I'm going to slowly, I'm going to honour this game. And I'm going to slowly work through it and explore everything I can, you know? So the fact that you can control the pace as a player aids with believing it, you know? And I think that as a writer, you need to not overwrite for that reason, you know? Like, you've got to hand a lot of stuff over. Because players want ultimate control. Like, even you said, like, changing the name and everything. It's like, it, it stay, it's interactive even beyond, yeah. it's like a metaform of interactivity. Yeah. It's like, there are times in Wanderer where if I was converting this into a feature film, I would have been a lot more explicit about certain plot points. But we want them to argue about what happened online. Yeah. You know? <laughs> we want to confuse them sometimes, which is not something you, you aim for as a writer normally. It's like, no, because we want them to, you know, and our Discord is like, hey, what did this mean? It's like, I'm not going to say anything. You... Talk about it with your buddies. You know? that, and that aspect of the intended experience where it is, okay, this needs to now be happening outside the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is, that's is a whole true. other. That's I want to bring other. it back to your first point, first of all, because we talked about some great things, right? If you have something like VR or even the new PlayStation controllers with haptic feedback, you can be extremely immersive. But if you don't have that, you still have some magic. Um, if, you, if you're on a little mobile game or an old console game, what I like to think of, like, yeah, how do you get that suspension of disbelief that I read a scroll and now I have a skill, or I can fast travel between places, not because it makes sense, just because it's convenient, is uh, I come back to theater. Like, in theater, there's this agreement that it's pretend, right? There's no, you're never in a theater, like, when you walk in, you know. You see the sets, you see the actors. If you're close enough, you can see the makeup on your face, you can see the people around you, but you all agree that you're going to go and pretend for a bit. And gamers are very much like that. They sit down in a game and go, I am here to pretend like I am on board. And so you can make these shortcuts where you can go, well, it doesn't make sense if you allow the player to do this, but it makes their life easier. Quick swap your equipment makes no real world sense, but it makes their life easier. Good, then they can just focus on playing and focus on that experience. So if you engage in that mm. pretend, think of it like theater, acknowledge that you're here to pretend together, your gamers will come along with you. I mean, the hint system's like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. It's like, it's like... Totally not uh, real. I, I'm, uh, I'm lost. You know, beep. It's like, okay, do this. Yeah. You know, you're breaking that reality for that moment because you just got to get to the next beat. Yeah. And, you, and you just can't... And you, you've had enough. And that's imported, yeah. the, that's imported theater tech. Yeah. That, that, that's, that is the Greek... That's the chorus coming out and going, this is just what happened. What do you reckon? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, like, and now we may be going over here for a bit. Yeah. So, Henry, you had, a, I think, an interesting example of that with Icarus, which is this concept of permadeath, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we all expect as a player of games that we can get shot we're going to die and we're going to start again. And yeah. I think all players have different approaches to how they feel about that. And do you want to just tell the audience a little bit about what happened with Icarus? Uh, I guess it comes from a games dev background of very, very intense survival gamers. My CEO invented a game called Daisy, which was the success of it was that suddenly you go in, you build up a character, you survive, and it's really, really hard. And if you, if you knock your arm on something, you've got to, you better find and build a bandage pretty quick because you'll bleed to death. But also when you die, you are dead. And so you have this, this, this experience which can take you, you know, hours. You could spend, like, there were people who would spend 20 hours in a row, and there was no save. Like, you find a safe place to put your character to sleep when you go out of the game, and there were some safe zones, and you jump back in. But if you lose your character, it's gone. But the upside of that is it puts incredible stakes on that. Yeah. And you start to take every little tiny thing very, very seriously. And we wanted to import that into Icarus. You don't have to play the game like that, but you can just tick the box that says, yeah, okay, permadeath. And shit just gets real. Because <laughs> you've got six other people, and 
are we, are we going to go and attack that mammoth? Because, man, it's it, right. like, if, it, it will fuck us up. Yeah. And like, we, are, we, are we ready? And you grind and you make sure that everything is ready and you get incredibly particular about every little detail. And the game allows you to do that. And that's mechanics serving narrative, serving mechanics, which is a really cool loop to get going. But it just ups the stakes and makes that much, much, much more meaningful. So let's talk about that, that clash, I guess, in the, the gaming community between uh, purists, shall we call them, who want to sort of play things on the hardest possible level, who revel in that sort of environment, uh, and people who say, there should be a way for me to play your game and enjoy it and not be operating at those stakes. Yeah. So I want to, I hesitate to call it a cheap mode or an easy mode, but more of a narrative mode. I want to come into the world and enjoy it, and I don't want to be shot in the head Most games have every that. three seconds. Yeah, and they do yeah. call it story mode these days. That's kind of the They new, do, the yeah, and it feels like there's a bit that. of a clash in, in yeah, the community. Yeah, I'm right just... There. Fuck those people, like, who like, this is, okay, games are, I think, the greatest form of storytelling ever because we have more tools than any other medium there is. We can Correct. engage the player in other ways. Like, I genuinely love what I do, and I genuinely think it's the coolest form of storytelling that humanity has invented. That said, it's still just entertainment. Oh my God, let people have fun. Yeah. Like, Jesus Christ. And there's games out there that do everything in this game Let them have fun. So Icarus wasn't made for you. Yeah, it wasn't. You, 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 weren't, you weren't our audience. Um, our audience of people who want that, that experience. But same way, let them, let them play it that way. Let them oh, play I think you can. And if, 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 if you went into Icarus and played it for an hour, I think you'd really enjoy it. Because it's, it's, it's wandering around in a beautiful, like really beautiful outdoor city. It looks a bit like Wyoming or something on an alien planet. <laughs> and the, the hardest part of my job is justifying that shit. Um, <laughs> but, and, but you're in a spacesuit, right? Uh, and you're chopping down trees and building log cabins. But then it gets harder as your player levels up and the storms come in and your, your base starts to get invaded by some really weird stuff. Uh, and that's when it will probably get a bit unpleasant and demanding for you. And I found, I watched a lot of people through playtests doing that, but it, quite often it turned out because like, oh, you look, yes, you, you love that, but this is the reasons you're giving us for not liking it are actually the reasons that we're making this game. So um, get out. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. But that's right. And, I, I, I do think there's a balance there, especially for me because I, I'm coming... From the outside of gaming, like like I said, I didn't have a great passion for games beyond sports games. And, and you so shouldn't forth. sell that short though. That's you know those oh, are no, amazing, no, those are amazing no, games. Yeah, no, no. I, th I think it gave me a, a different sort of lens to view this. But like in Wanderer, you find an apartment that belonged to your grandfather, and it, and the mission is within that apartment. But first, you put got to put the power on. And I'm comment. This is a comment on me, but I wrote it, and I was in there for like an hour and a half going. What the hell's going on? <laughs> I'm not, no, it's still not working, you know. I got, I got pushed to the edge a little, you know. Uh, but, uh, but then again, it's a, it's a puzzle game. It's an escape room game, you know. You'd go into that knowing that, you know. If that's something you want to play, you want to play that escape, have that escape room experience, you know. And a lot of people would love that. They're primed for that, you know. So, so you, I, I think, think it's about, about that. Mm. You know, you obviously have far more information about your audiences yeah. than anyone in this room, right? I mean, far more than than Netflix has about their audience. Yeah. How do you think about that? Knowing how how hard people find things, where do you pitch it? Are you designing for a, a specific audience that doesn't include me? Uh, you're always you're you, always designing to like an intended experience, yeah. right? Mm. And if you because if you're not doing that, I don't want to be too like. There's a million ways to do things, but I feel like you're doing it wrong unless you're thinking, like, what am I aiming to, what is the experience I'm aiming to yeah, deliver? Yeah, it goes here? back to that early thing. What's but we, we have incredible, like, tools for assessing that. I can tell you everything from, like, how long a player spent on a certain spot, you know, so I know that there's something around there was confusing them. We look at the area and go, oh, it's that thing. And it's like, well, okay, that needs more information. And you talk about going back to writing scenes in VR going, this, this scene probably needs another line here because it sort of maybe it clarifies something and help, or, or the watch might need to provide a, a sort of a, you know, a push somewhere. And, but we also know everything you've ever played on Steam. Yeah. We have so much data that we can actually pull in and start, we can do this from like, from the get-go. So we do massive assessment about who we believe our audience yeah. is, what we think they're going to want in the game, and, and, and also you know, measure that against the game we want to make. But we can serve that and analyze it to a really, really sophisticated degree the whole way through. So our products are much more tied closely to our audience, I yeah. think. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, to, to talk about the differences between writing for, say, film and TV and, and games, you know, we, we have playtesters. I mean, there's all that data, but then there's playtesters who are playing. I mean, these games were just played time and time and time and time again. It wasn't like, oh, we did a test audience in Waipukarau yeah. and they said this. 
you know, okay, great. We have users. What, what can we do? Well, we can't reshoot that scene. So can we change the edit a little? I mean, we had a lot more. I mean, we, we could test it time and time again. Iterate. And, and, and I could rewrite it time and time again. So that's a little, well, a lot different from TV and film, really. Yeah. We get a, a lot more cracks at it. Totally. Anytime I produce um, anything, I'm, I'm assuming that's just going to, that's the beginning, and it's going to be, there's going to be 10 different iterations of that, and the, and the end yeah. version's going to be sometimes totally different. I haven't... Yeah, yeah, completely, because, I mean, all the players are individuals who are going to yeah. be attracted to, a, a, you know, it's, it's, you know, they're going to walk up, walk up to the pot plant and just stand there, and it's like, we need a line for that. Yeah. are <laughs> standing at the pot plant. It can be that made no sense to the person, or they got frustrated because, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten different people played it, and they all had that similar experience. Okay, we, we need to address that, but yeah. we do get the opportunity to address it. I so had, it's, mm. Yeah, interesting one where um, our test audience actually inspired the core story of a game. We have these series of idle, idle clicker games. You know, you kind of let the resources build up, and you just keep building and building and building and getting bigger. And this one was going to be themed on Vikings. And the key mechanic in these games is at some point when you build up, you can wipe it all out. You destroy everything, go back to square one, but you get this huge bonus. Everything builds twice as fast, or your guys are twice as strong. So that's the key way to play. You have to play it that way to really progress. But nobody wants to wipe out their stuff. And that's what all this data find out is everybody, even though they got these amazing bonuses, it felt really bad to wipe out everything. And so as I was gathering the data for this new version of the game, I was like, all right, that's the key thing. That's the most important mechanic to how to play the game and the one people least understood. So that mechanic needs to be core to the story. And we've got this Viking story, and so we know Ragnarok is going to be the mechanic that wipes everything out. And Ragnarok, of course, if you're a myth nerd, you know it happens once, and it's the end of the world, and the new world builds out of it. So now we go, what if that's the story? What if the story is figuring out the mystery of why Ragnarok keeps happening instead of happening just once? It's happening over and over. And that was there based on the data of how people played the game, but then it became this really interesting mystery that drove the narrative of this entire game. So we actually mm. like found this story core out of that audience data when starting a game. Mm. So how do you think about um, the concept of replayability? I mean, from two different perspectives, right? Obviously, a, an expensive game, like a VR game or a AAA game, to justify the cost of admission once you've played through it once, you know, like what's going to bring people back. And for mobile gaming, where it's cheap but therefore maybe feels disposable, so it's like, oh, I only paid three bucks for that, I don't have to play it anymore. I, th I think pace is, you know, again, being able to control the pace. The first time you play the game, it may be an eight-hour experience. The, the second time, you know, you do it in four hours because you played it before, so you're having a different experience playing the game based on pace. Pace, to me, is a really big definer of writing for games and the gaming experience. You know, the fact that you can control it. You know, having that explorative eight-hour experience is going to be very different from experiencing the game again in four hours. Like, I think that could be something that brings people back. Mm -hmm. Also, microdose dopamine mechanics like Rick deals in. Yeah. Well, we and, and you guys do this more, so I want to hand this off to you. But I think at some point it's okay to not write new story, and it's okay to let the gameplay take it over. Yeah. Um, there's something that I'll hand off to you that we call emergent storytelling. Emergent storytelling is when you have a series of game mechanics that build off of each other and allow for a lot of different possibilities to happen. And then the story is the story you tell yourself based on those things that happen. So classic example is the game Crusader Kings. It's the sandbox of you being a European ruler, and there are all these things can go to war, and your descendants can die, and you can make alliances, and your uh, you know, counselors can stab you in the back, and et cetera, et cetera. And there's no predetermined story, but you remember those moments where you're like, oh, man, I was totally going to like marry into that place, but then... Um, the person's brother tried to kill me, and then that stopped that plot. And like that's the story you tell. And the game itself is, is all about the game. That, that, that Crusader Kings game is basically a spreadsheet, yeah, with fancy graphics. But like the stories people tell. Um, and Neil Gaiman made this point about Scott McCloud making this point about um, comics yesterday oh, yeah. in the talk where he said everything happens in the gap between those two images, right? Like the guy holding the knife, and then outside the building in the scream, and it's like you killed that person in your head. And yeah. in games, we do this. I mean, my job is to almost like figure out what the minimum viable product is sometimes in terms of information you can give the player so they can do the maximum amount of work in their head. And on Icarus, it's just like create a world yeah. where there are these mechanics that people can play with that will allow them to build stories together to the point where that journey to elevate your player to the point where you have like sharp enough sticks to go and attack a mammoth. And they'll and, remember that. And, they'll and remember that voyage, getting together yeah, totally. and fighting that mammoth. And, and the, voyage from where they, the, the voyage from where they landed to how they found the mammoth 
all this stuff can occur. Like if someone finds a cave, and in this cave there are these, these worms, but the stuff, the water, they, but they, they managed to get through the worms with the help of somebody else just to get that water, which is actually slightly polluted and made them slightly sick, but it did mean that their player didn't actually die of thirst. Uh, and that's just, no one plans this. This isn't written. This is just, this is permitted. Do you watch how fans interact with the game once it's out in Always, the world? Always, totally. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't end at launch. You, like, getting in Discord and, and engaging with your community and figuring out, because like, a game is like, launched now, and then it's just, like, particularly the games, sort of games I tend to work on, are added to continually. To like, okay, what are the stories that are emerging? What are the players actually trying to do? And how can we serve that with the resources that we have available? Yeah. Um, and like, your, your, your relationship to your, your community is everything. From the, even from the, the moment you start even thinking of a game, you should start thinking about building that community. And maybe for, and for film, it's probably the same. You, like, you want to start seeding the internet with this stuff. You want to get people excited about it. With games, we have the advantage of being able to... You can play a game like, long before it's finished. It's just kind of crap. But there are people who really get off on that, and these become your super fans, and they, they, they start spreading the word. And if it's good, and, that, and you, also you service that relationship, and, you, and, you, and you, your friends, and the game industry is itself quite informal, so you can do that. I'm scared I'm not going to make the point later, but if there's writers in this room who are looking for paid gigs, the paid writing gigs are in games now, the, really, the steady ones. Email, there's a, there's a million little game startup companies out there in Auckland, there's a million in Wellington, there's, there's, a, there's a, a thousand in Dunedin. To email them, say like, hey, do you guys need any writers? Because they do. I mean, it's a question that's come through from the audience, is yeah. how, how should a film and TV writer break I, I, into gaming narrative? Been, Strokes I, of luck aside, so it sounds like it doesn't need a stroke of luck. Well, it does, I think there's a lot of luck. Um, certainly that's, our, I think, kind of all our story. Yeah. Um, yeah. These days, People know they need writers. They don't necessarily know how to get in touch with them. I think you'll find you probably need to do a bit of free work to, to start that, but that's, I think in games, anybody wanting to get into games probably needs to start just making, depending on what discipline they're in. But I think the money will probably start, like, within... If you can do that for... If you can get your writing on one game, you've got a job. Yeah, it helps. I'd say three things. One, you've already got, is just the portfolio. Any kind of writing portfolio is great. I think that matters. Yep. Two is collaboration. Games are potentially even more collaborative than, than film is. You just, all the time, you're constantly working with other people all the time, and everybody's work breaks everybody, other, everybody else's work, so you have to be doing that. So, like, I would always take a mediocre writer and great collaborator over the other 100%. way around. And then the third thing is what we were talking about is that understanding of how game narrative serves the mechanics and the player experience. Um, and so you can get that in a couple different ways. You certainly can make your own games using tools like Twine and stuff to do little interactive choose-your-own-adventure games. Anybody who makes, like, board games or, like, anybody who's a, a dungeon master is, like, thumbs up in my book because yep. they know how to respond to their audience. Um, or even just analyzing games, just playing games and being able to say, this is how the narrative and the mechanics came together, just thinking that yeah. way helps. And then uh, just playing uh, the game itself that you actually, if you get in the door, <laughs> just play that game a little bit that they're making and then talk to them about how they see it working. I, I would imagine that a lot of game makers would be very interested to hear from people who have experience writing scripts, TV, whatever it is. Because um, uh, if you have a really good, firm grip on character and narrative, you can bring a lot to these games. You can really value add. And I think yeah. they know that. I, I have heard many times that there aren't a lot of great writers out there working in games. A lot of times they may write themselves or, or fumble through a little bit. Like with Wanderer, um, you know, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of historic scenes. The Watch characters, you know, a, a, a chap from the 18th century, I worked very hard to kind of recreate the way he would speak and all that kind of thing. That character work, I think, really went a long way. Like the, the Nazi scene, I did a lot of research on, you know, who the actual historic Nazi general probably could have been in that setting and where his mind was at at that time. Because that's what writers do, you know? Like, we, we go for that stuff. And the other guys are focusing on the design and the, uh, the puzzles and everything else that they're doing. You know, that's a gift for them. really means a lot to them that, you've, yeah. you, that you can bring that sort of sophisticated you know, writing of character and so forth. And those so, are the restrictions you're working inside as well. Like, I think the other thing would just be, be, be good at working inside limitations. Yeah. Like, but enjoy that because that's actually what makes the creative yeah. process. That's what creates the meaning. That's right, 48-hour film fests are so fun. I should clarify just, uh, in some companies, game writer and narrative designer are the same role. That's yeah. where our pickpockets all wrapped up together. We think about that. In other companies, they're separate roles. But you need to think of them as different, but like, even if you're doing both of them. 
And so practically, how does game writing look on the page compared to film and television, like particularly where there are plot points that have multiple outcomes or dialogue possibilities, depending on what the character is? Yeah, there's no standard script in games. Every game has its own format. I work in spreadsheets mainly. My one literally looks like a family tree. Yeah. Yeah. It's yep, a teaser and a bit huge. like, and, and that was the, 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 the software is called Odyssey that we use. And it, it's a family, it's a tree, you know, it's like that goes to that. If he does this, this happens. And then there's three boss possibilities of what he could say. And that branches out into two more. And that branches out into two yeah, more. Learn spreadsheets know? and flowcharts. Talk to people. Um, you know, Agent Intercept would always start out with flowcharts to show the set pieces so we could scope it out. But then the script we used was a combination of me talking to the level designers going, what do you need to know to build the levels? Yeah. Talking to the audio people and me going, what do we need to know for the dialogue? Talking to the uh, cinematics director and going, what do you need for the cutscenes? And then we cobbled together a script format that served those people. Yeah. Actually, um, Rick hasn't got his slides with him. He's, he shows a really good one where he just breaks down the entire plot into like the simplest, like almost like four point yeah. Flow chart possible just to get everybody on board about this is what this is what happens and then then blows out different aspects of it for different people who need different things and like the animators and it's like you need a we need a sad car uh, or we need a, you know we need a, we need an evil car and like so the good the good car is going to go like big big fishtail like, swagger <laughs> but the evil car is going to be like eh, eh, eh. Yeah. and and you but you can you can start pulling that out of that even just that 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 first document yeah. and then you just basically determine the deliverables. From what people need. Well, well, one thing which was great about Odyssey was that, you know, like the watch, he, he would have had probably about 150,000 lines, you know, and then we're doing over two years of writing and I'm writing more lines all the time. As I said, he's an old-timey character, so it's like he's got all these sort of tunes of phrase. And I'd get to a point where it was like, he must have said that before. <laughs> and then I'd look in and go, oh, he said it before four times. <laughs> okay. So I went back and took them out and said, guys, I'm, I have to change this. He said it before. So, you know, like, it, this is so much dialogue. But, like, that software was fantastic because you could really pinpoint. And Witcher 3 has yeah. 950 voice actors. Right. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> like, I think of how blown out we all were after two weeks of voice recording. And I'm like, how is that guy doing, doing the Geralt voice? For like, yeah, hundreds of thousands of lines of dialogue yeah. and not killing his throat. So, so let's think about it the other way. Um, one of the audience members asks, games blend narrative and play. Are there ways that screenwriters can bring more play into movies and television? I am way on the extreme of this because every single one of my theater shows is interactive. So like, I love that. They're either choose your own adventure shows or like a pantomime or I made a video game theater show where everyone in the audience had paddles that were buttons and we would like flash button combos on screens and the audience would have to like do it. They built me this like 10 meter tall dungeon set that had like ladders and platforms to make it look like a big Donkey Kong thing and like, that was amazing. Um, so I would love to see more shit like that. And Netflix, you know, Bandersnatch, Black Mirror was huge. They have like a, a trivia choose your own adventure game. Yeah. So I would love to see the extreme literal end where you are actually interacting with things that change based on your choices. You don't have to do that. I feel like that's, I'm a fan I feel like that's like the tech doesn't really exist to support that. Not because also it, it could and it can and then you know, Bandersnatch is an example of the way like films become a bit more like games because you can choose yeah. to see different sections and you know and pick your own adventure kind of it thing. It feels like Netflix is experimenting a bit with that. I mean, my niece yeah. in London showed me there's a Bear Grylls one, right, which she loves, and it's mm. Bear Grylls is you have to help them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Get still through once, the once jungle. You, once you have the experience of a film like created and you're sitting there, by its nature, it's generally going to be linear. So it seems to me the real potential for interaction is. is before that, we're like engaging with your community to decide yep. what's actually being created. So the, the film that results is, is a collaboration with your audience to a certain extent, which also there's your market, and then it goes from there. Yeah, there's a lot I, of stories, I don't right? Really favorite have a, characters who don't get killed off get come back because the audience like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't really have a good answer there, but um, I, I would say that if, if I was comparing it to film, it's how I would imagine working on a Lord of the Rings may be as a writer, in that you're there's so much detail, or, or a Marvel film, where you're really creating a universe. It, it really has that sort of feel about it. I mean, I have done some American work, and the scope broadens a lot because they have more money, so I can do car chases and cars can bang together and stuff. Like cars can, people can't bang together in a New Zealand film because it's <laughs> like, you need a stunt man, he can't be around. So I guess that's a bit... That's I'd also how like I would see compare it to a feature film. Uh, adult animation. I think people are finally oh. recognizing that games aren't just for kids, and I think people are also finally realizing that animation isn't just for kids. So Love, Death, and Robots is a great example. Oh, my and God. Things like Arcane. And, you know, there's some really cool stuff out there going, actually, yeah, animation is for everybody. 
And so I'd love to see more of that too. Um, there's one more, because I think one of the things I think the tools that games can bring to bear on a lot of other things is gamification, right? Like, you know, we turned, um, like, Instagram was quite, it used to be a hotel selection app, but they said, like, we want to make it more like a game. So they introduced, you know, um, likes and, and, and all, these little all these little mechanisms they borrowed from games about, about basically becoming slightly, <laughs> becoming slightly competitive. And my argument off the top of my head would be if you want film to be more like that ever, I just gamify the production process rather than the actual outcome, because that production process is, is collaborative in its very nature. And I'd be really interested to see more of that. Like, I mean, this is just developing on the point I made before. What do you mean by gamify the production process? Like, and get people involved in like voting for and upvoting like what you want to happen in the story. And, um, or getting contributors or just like, Reddit's a really great example of people where like invent entire film plots in a thread, yeah. you know? Uh, and then start actually pulling it out and go, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do this, here's a Kickstarter, let's put some cash in, see what we can do, see where this goes. Um, and that's, 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 that's a simple example. Well, that, that sense of ownership that players get and like taking it on to other platforms and Discord and arguing about it, I mean, it, it's like a lot of film producers would envy that, but I don't, they're not quite there, right? I know. Yeah, they they I can't would. really engage people in the same way. I'm going to be extreme again. Um, the modder community is great in games where people can take a game and then they can build, you know, side things that change the balancing or add new characters or build new levels and pub it in. Like, I wish we could do more of that and stuff. I wish IP law would go away so we could have, like, a bunch of great Star Wars oh. stories, you know? Because that world is great. I'm happy where it is. <laughs> I did say I was going to be extreme. No, I'm with it, needs, it needs to go away, eh? Like, I mean, borrowing an influence is the creative engine of all culture ever. Right? Everything's a remix. Copy, transform, yeah. combine existing I mean, ideas. That, that modern community thing, I think, is a great, a great thing just to explore for a second. Um, so this is where you know, players of, the ga of some games, obviously not all games, are able to moderate it in certain ways. And we've seen fans use that for things like, for instance, with The Sims, creating new characters that reflect characters of colour that weren't in the original game, yeah. um, you know, black hairstyles, yeah, yeah. different outfits. So bringing diversity to the game through that that modding process. And as creators, do you see that, um, that sort of creative evolution coming from transformative fans as something that's additive or is Mate, it... Mate, it's everything. Like, yeah. DayZ Day was literally, like, it, it made stupid amounts of money. Because it, but it was just a mod on the back of another game that allowed yeah. players to explore a completely different angle on it. We leave hooks out. We, like, you know, a lot of people, like, protect, want to protect their IP. We leave the door open. It was like, come in and, like, change our code and do what you want. There are limitations to what you can do that, particularly for porting onto a console, because they're much more protective of their equipment and stuff. But on PC, it is like the best thing you can do is come in and make it so that the, that the character represents the person you want to see. Yeah. Um, we, we, we try to do that as much as we can, but also you know, any aspect of the world that isn't in the world we gave you, come on, come on in. I, I don't think that that's not a, a new thing. It's like I know, like with sports games and so forth. Like oh God, no. no. You know, I've created number eight Danger rugby yeah. player, like buff dude and stuff. And my uh, son plays a basketball game and, you know, he's got his players that he creates for himself and it's him, you know, and it looks like him and he's in the, in the game. And, I mean, that's a great, it's great to be able to do that, yeah. you know. But, because, again, it just serves that immersive... Um, yeah, and I, I just think it's an interesting distinction, I suppose, because I think transformative fandom for screen and television has always been something that's sort of seen as quite subversive or taboo, that oh. you're creating these different fan art or fan fiction, whereas it feels mm. like gaming in some properties uh, is more welcoming of that. The mm. new characters in our horse racing game came from the fans. Not literally in that they invented them, but as we were adding a new story mode to this horse racing ranching game, we went, look, this has to represent them. So we spent weeks combing through Facebook posts and looking at data, and again, looking at the flowcharts of the demographics, looking at the motivations of why people play, looking at influencers that they follow and go, okay, this is the lifestyle that our audience wants. These new characters need to represent that. And so, you know, indirectly, they designed these new characters by telling us what they like. Totally wanting to own just for a second that there's a bunch of, like, middle-class, educated white guys up here talking yeah. about this, though, just for a sec. Yes, yes. That's, we changing. That's changing. We need to champion that. Um, you know, Thanks diversity was <laughs> something we thought about when we hired our, our narrative team at Pickpock. I definitely was like, I need yeah. to get ideas that aren't mine. Um, and so I'm happy that we have gender parity in our narrative team, but, you know, we still skew to white and Pakeha, yeah. so something and we need to work my on. My company is more women than men, but it's still, it's still we're, we're in Dunedin. So yeah, you need the voices I, I, telling the stories. Uh, VR yeah, okay. is still yeah. quite young in terms of gaming. I personally really like the idea of putting male players playing females in games and, and, and living through that yeah. and, and gaining some sort of understanding 
of that life or, or, or reactions by living through that because it's so immersive. And, you know, feature films like that, we will identify with absolutely anyone who is a lead character, you know? We will enter their shoes, go on that journey, and learn about each other. And I think that VR really has an, there's an opportunity there, especially being so open, to go to the next level with that, you know? Just wonder, did Senua's sacrifice come out in VR? Oh, yeah. Because that that's like, I, I, I am a yeah. schizophrenic, like, picked woman in the year 600, undergoing this assault from, like, the demons in my mind. That thing was just like, yeah. oh, there's a way to put me in shoes. I just know Right, I love that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, this is what authors have been, novelists and people have been doing forever, you know, that they are literally trying to put you in the shoes of people that are, are foreign to your experience so you can develop empathy. Shout out to novels, you though. They, they did, novels are always going to do that better than anything, though. Yeah. Not well, but, 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 you know, look, it's early, it's early days. I mean, where are we going to be in 20 years? Yeah. Where are we well, going to be in 30 years? that's why you need the new voices behind the scene, right? We, we can do our best to yeah, tell other characters, but we need the people in the company also telling <laughs> so those the, stories. The industry's evolving. But, I mean, until we actually have all those voices out there, that games aren't going to be doing the work for humanity that they yeah. could be. But, um, I mean, an example is, like, you're, you're doing really great work looking to, like, um, bring in, like, like, writers from outside, just bringing up writers, basically. Oh, the sounds of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a separate thing to the gaming, but oh, I, totally. I run comedy tables in South Auckland and I bring lots of different... I don't care who they, these people are, as long as they're from South Auckland, which is where I'm from. They can come around the table and, um, and punch up jokes with me because, you know, I'm a comedy writer normally and everything, but um, I just want to create a bridge. But, yeah, I mean, these people it's can... Uh, they, they can go on, they can move into games and all that kind of stuff, but it's just offering them that experience and maybe... A table for gaming could yeah, be yeah, well, as soon as another as, place to take that. As soon yeah. as you started talking about that, I run a company. I was like, I'm really interested in doing that. You've got you're bringing through young writers. With You've other got the co-working spaces down there. Yeah, yeah. People like, I'll be talking to Dane about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, so you know, run some of these guys through some, you know, in a, couple, in a year or two. Like, you've got any really good voices coming through? I need a, I need a game writer. Who've you got? Yeah. Oh, that does mm. remind me. If anyone is affiliated with like schools and stuff, we've been making an active effort at Pickpock guest lecture in film schools and things like that and talk about games. So a big part of my job lately has been doing that, trying to get in other communities to talk about it. So I'm happy to, happy to do that. Uh, another question from the audience. What's the recommendation for a VR headset in the current market without getting into thousands of dollars? <laughs> well, my one's broken already. Valve. Buy the, buy the Valve. But that's, that's a beautiful piece of equipment that would allow you to have the best experience, in my humble. Okay, we've, the got index. A, yep. we've got a few minutes left. I thought maybe if we could just close with each of you sharing with us what you think the biggest insight you've gained from your work in gaming and, and what you think that offers to a film and television screenwriting audience. Uh, well, for me, I, I feel really blessed having gone through this experience because, as I indicated earlier, you know, budgets can be very tight in, in New Zealand. And, um, but even if you're in America, you don't often get a chance to, to write on something so expansive. And games are very expansive. I mean, it's, it's, it's imaginations running wild. You know, you can recreate, uh, we've got a moon landing. You know, we've got things like that. So I just feel blessed, really. Yeah. Just such an amazing job that this experience happened. And I got to... I got to write on something so creative and everything. I mean, I'm Karawa compared to everyone else in the room. Like, <laughs> I'm twice as old as everyone else in the room. That's okay. You know, I got over that eventually. But uh, so it's a young industry. You know, I mean, you're just writing stuff that you'd normally just, in your wildest dreams, you wouldn't get a chance to write. So I just feel very blessed. For me, it's probably to do with, like, I think something I said earlier, like the invisibility of good writing that so much of what I would write would be stuff that would really inform the world and the way that it's built and would go through, say, concept designers, and no one would ever see any of that writing that I wrote. That's just briefs for people building the world in which the game would occur and, and all that kind of thing. And just realising how actually just rewarding that process is, because if you get it right and you're working with these, these, these are really great, great people who can interpret what you're writing and, and then build a thing and then it exists, and this thing, 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 they all logically interconnect and represent, however, like the thematic concerns of your game and all that stuff. You've done a really good job. So there's the invisibility, but also, and connected to that would be uh, that sometimes games are sort of told, you know, games don't really have character development in them. Like maybe that was true 20 years ago. But for the reason I just described, that world is a character. And you can deploy all your normal character development tools to, a, to, a, to assess how that's working. 
Like, is the world changing in response to something the character is doing? Is the character's understanding of the world changing? Is it internal or external? All that stuff. Uh, or, you know, is the car sad? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah that's that, an animator's job. Yeah, that's, that, 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 that was quite a big thing in Wanderer too, actually. Um, like that, that's how character development works. The, the apartment was like den, you know, and, and it had to reflect the grandfather. So you were sort of, you know, he wasn't with us. So you were in his space. So the character had to be the world, literally. I yeah, mean, it was yeah, very that, much that. Yeah. So that's character, and I, that's, that's not necessarily, I don't think, standard industry thinking at the moment, but I would strongly argue in favour of that as a way to, to approach the question of character design in quite a few different games. Yeah. Mm. Uh, two things for me. One, I mean, fortunately, I already felt this way, and I think a lot of you do too, but again, collaboration, games, you just are always working with a lot of different people, and all of this stuff has to mesh together. So collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. The other one would be, um, the thing I said earlier, is, is it's not your story, it's the player's story. And that's a good thing. Because, again, if you can harness that creative power, if you can make them feel engaged, if you can make them feel like the world and the mechanics are responding to them, that what they do matters, that they're at the center of that, well, then you can connect with them, and that's what you want as a storyteller, right? Like, you want to connect to your audience. That's, at least for me, that's why I do this. And so um, lean into that, allow for that. It's not restricting your creative control. It's enhancing it by letting you connect to your audience in a way you never could before. Incredible. Please join me in thanking our panel. The Big Screen Symposium 2022 is brought to you by Script to Screen. We are grateful to our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, AUT, Images and Sound, and Te Mangai Paho. Voiceover is by me, Anna Corbett, and music by Poddington Bear.